following is a public talk given by Gavin Harrison at the Dharma Center in Somerset West on February the 25th, 1995. I'd like to really welcome you all here today to a very special day. And I'd like to welcome my wonderful friend Gavin. And Rand, who we met for the first time Today is a very special day because this is the last public talk that Gavin will be able to do. He was booked uh, to be coming in Cape Town and uh, in Copo, and in a month's time, month or six weeks' time, there's going to be a big function in San Francisco. But Gavin's health has deteriorated in the last few weeks, and particularly this week. Uh, he's been very, very ill, and he's not well today. Um, but we felt that it was very important that this get-together, this workshop, this gathering, this being together, this sharing, actually took place. And it's only going to be an important day today if people really open this is not one of those sort of talks where Gavin's going to uh, give you some airy-fairy talking. This has got to be participation. This has got to be people who are suffering inside, opening up. So really and truly, what we're saying is, please don't be afraid. It's very important that you ask the questions or questions that you have inside you today because you will not get another chance. So it's very, very important to realize the preciousness of this moment. This is true of any moment, but mostly we forget that because there's always tomorrow. With HIV, there's no tomorrow. There's only now. And this is the reality that you all understand. So, Gavin, it's wonderful to have you here again. And it's not so nice to be But it's afternoon to you. So, I thank you all be open. So, in addition to what Rodney said, I'd like to also say that um, you've noticed that Gavin's focus on self, and I'm quite sure that at the end of the day you feel compelled to own your own copy. If you would like for Gavin to write a message or stick a sign the box, um, to please at the end of um, the day to put buy a book, put a piece of paper with your name on it and he'd be happy to do it. However, he's asked specifically to please be understanding and mindful of his condition and how he is and he's feeling very fragile that he will have to do this upstairs lying down in his bed. He really doesn't have the energy to after what's happening here to still stand up in the sign box. So if you'd like that during the first break to um, 
make sure the books are prepared and then we'll send it off to Gavin. Gavin has also asked to read the foreword by a, to his book by a very special friend and department teacher in the US called Joseph Goldstein. Um, <coughs> Joseph has inspired many meditators all over the world. He's inspired Gavin, I think. And, Ga and he was also the person that inspired us to start and here. So it gives me great joy to read this forward to Gavin's book. I first met Gavin Harrison in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1981. From that beginning, med beginning meditation weekend, Gavin has come a lot, become a long-time student, friend, and colleague whose special gifts now shine so profoundly through this book. Through an extraordinary journey of suffering shared in these times by so many others, Gavin has forged an understanding infused with wisdom and compassion. It is a wisdom grounded in the meditation practice of the Buddha's teachings and a compassion born from his own great open heart. How do we cope with the trauma of abuse? with the onslaught of disease, or with the simple tribulations of our daily lives. And in the midst of it all, how can we connect with a purity of awareness that remains our unfailing refuge? In the love of Buddha, points us to the inner strength and courage we all have, although sometimes overlooked. A deeply personal odyssey gave birth to this book. A timeless wisdom emerges from it. I am grateful to Gavin for his gift of Dharma. Only someone who lived the teachings could have written it. Joseph Goldstein, Barry, Massachusetts, New Year 1994. Well, first of all, there's some people in the back there that I can't see, so I guess that means you can't see me either. So I really want to invite you to shuffle around. There's some place here in the front if you want to sit in the cushion. You know, maybe some of the people in the very back would like to bring a chair around here. You know, don't be somewhere where you feel a little bit um, separate. I don't think it's necessary. I would like to thank Rod, uh, Rodney and Hela and the Dharma Center for arranging this afternoon. Uh, very grateful and touched to be here. I need to clarify a few things that they said. Um, I'm not feeling well at the moment, but I've been here before, you know, so this is not alarming to me. The question is just responding to it appropriately so that I can get back to sort of stable health again, which I fully expect to as soon as possible. 
And the decision to start teaching, as difficult as that is, because I really love um, and sharing, uh, is really, I feel, a, an act of self-love, that it's just a little too stressful for me now. I've done it for a long time, it's been very fulfilling, and it's now time for me to let go of that and maybe devote my energies in other ways, more simple ways. And for me, in so many ways, the journey with the virus is about responding to situations and circumstances with compassion and love and care, both inwardly and outwardly. So, if any of you have uh, a feeling that um, uh, I'm real fragile and that you can't be challenging and provocative in your questions, please throw that out the window. I really thrive on that. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not saying that uh, I'm in robust health today, I'm not. But uh, I'm wholeheartedly here and I really hope that this time together is going to be rich and meaningful. For as Rodney said, this is my sort of swan song. And, uh, I'd like it to be kind of dazzling and memorable. <laughs> or as dazzling and memorable as possible. <laughs> Did I talk about CPO last time? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But so, there's some people who weren't there speaking. Yeah. So. Well, I'm going to speak a little more about CPO, but I was upstairs just sort of thinking about this. And CPO is the name that I've given the virus. And I'll be speaking about how I've come into a relationship with the virus. And you see, we really get on pretty well. He's quite cooperative. But he's thrown an absolute tantrum with you, you know, and, uh, and, and an increasing tantrum. So I'm going on retreat next week up in Kopo for two weeks. And he and I are going to have a real serious talk about exactly what this is all about. It's not. Okay, I've uh, prepared some sort of opening statement, which is just as well, because if I tried to be spontaneous today, uh, I probably wouldn't have made any sense whatsoever. I feel that perhaps the greatest triumph in the life of any woman or any man is in the moment of sincere and courageous decisions to no longer live our lives governed by the forces of division or separation that have kept us so confused, <coughs> so isolated and so alone for so long. So many of us, I found, are really sick and tired of the self-hatred, the inner conflict, the fear, the rage, the delusion, the inner denial, the despair that so often swirl both around us and within us. And I feel that it is right that we be here this afternoon. It is right that we be concerned about human suffering, this human suffering that we all share to some degree or other, about our suffering. And I feel it is appropriate that we explore the possibility of finding harmony and balance, understanding and equanimity with the suffering also. Certainly, 
life is no picnic. And this human dilemma, the dilemma of suffering, unavoidable and largely ever-present if our eyes and our hearts are open, this dilemma has for centuries and centuries been the concern of great women and men of all the spiritual traditions. Christian mystics, the great mystics of the early centuries, the Buddhist nuns and monks, the Kabbalists, the Taoists, all shared this passion to understand suffering and discover why it is there and is it possible to find a way to transcend it. And I feel that each one of us on our own spiritual journey, each one of us joins these great souls of the past our ancestors as we journey together, perhaps guided by a deep and intuitive belief that this triumph of the spirit is not about avoiding heartbreak, it's not about avoiding the suffering and pain, it's about facing it, it's about making what is uncomfortable a lot more malleable and workable and negotiable in our lives. So that we're no longer victimized by the hard knocks that come our way. So that we're no longer blown around by, by the winds of circumstance like a leaf in the breeze. We find instead, hopefully, a peace with all that arises. With the beauty, the joy, the exquisite loveliness of life as well as with the so-called difficulties also. This awakening to a deeper experience and understanding of love, compassion, and kindness must bring an end to the division and conflict and confusion that wrap so many of our lives. Whether we have aged, whether we have cancer, whether we've been abused, whether we suffer from depression, whether we're physically disabled, whether those around us are suffering, whether we're perfectly healthy, whether we're physically disabled. To believe this triumph of the spirit is a possibility of, for each one of us, irrespective of the circumstances that we face. I love this image. I feel that each one of us are like exquisite flower buds, all in the process of opening into our greatest fullness and loveliness, irrespective of the circumstances that we face in. This is our birthright, and I know that it is possible. Today I really hope that we can join together to look frankly, candidly, and truly at the issues of death and mortality, difficulties. Come face to face with what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life. And explore the possibility of knowing now, this afternoon, deeply unambiguously and abidingly oh boy <laughs> <laughs> that
that this triumph of the spirit and that peace which passes all understanding is a real possibility in our lives right now, today. And I don't believe that we all have to have some virus grab us by the scruff of the neck in order to wake us up to the preciousness and the beauty and the fragility of life. This, I say unashamedly, is the fire, flame and passion of my life these days. And it is the essence of the book also. I'm really excited about our time together here. I always learn much in gatherings of this, so that's always lovely. And I hope and pray that I'm able to serve you well. Among one of the tribes in Africa, when a woman decides that she wishes to have a child, she walks out alone from the village. Perhaps she finds the tree and sits down beneath it. Then she listens. She listens for the song of the child that she decided to bear. The day she hears that song clearly is considered to be the birthday of the child. She teaches the song to her husband or partner and it becomes a part of the mating ritual between the man and the woman. They sing the song during her pregnancy and again when the child is born. It is the, the song of the child and it will be sung on each birthday and at each important passage of the child's life. On any wedding day the song of the groom and the bride are sung together in celebration. And the last time that song is sung is when the old and aged body is lowered into its grave. The path of meditation is like remembering or rediscovering our original father. Through the deepening of self-understanding we reconnect with ourselves and remember all that has been forgotten. Perhaps we have never known ourselves at all, but if we listen inwardly, we may hear again the beautiful strains of our long last melody. When we hear the song clearly, when we discover our true spirit, we stop blaming or praising others for making us feel bad or good. We no longer feel like victims of circumstance. Rooted in truth, we bend with the winds of circumstance like birdies. We engage with the forces of our lives instead of running away from who we are and from all that is painful. And in that moment when we are willing to open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life, the gateway to our real self opens. This is the gateway through the world that have kept us isolated and limited for so long. Walking through the gate, we access the possibility of a profound happiness and peace that is not dependent upon the conditions of our life. Meditation is certainly one of the paths to this flowering, to this freedom of the spirit. 
Personally, the meditation practice has deeply touched and deeply impacted my life. I have unshakable faith in the unfolding and process of the meditation. I don't for one instant believe that it's the only path to God. But I do know that for some people, where appropriate, this utterly simple tool can be powerfully transformative on every level. I'd like to begin by inviting you to join me in a very brief guided meditation so that those of you who have not meditated before have an experiential understanding of what we'll probably touch on through the afternoon. Lastly, I just want to affirm that I hope we have a lot of fun here this afternoon. It always happens, so we, we don't even have to try. My experience has always been that really getting closer to truth brings a kind of happiness and celebration that always, for me, surpasses my experience of the other lesser joys of life. So, I hope it's going to be fun too. So, if you will be as comfortable as possible, it's always a good idea to hold your posture as perpendicularly as possible. Allow the eyes to close gently if that's comfortable, otherwise, of course, you're welcome to leave them open. You'll sit for about 10 minutes. And in the initial minutes, I invite you to give attention to the sitting posture. Just be aware of the feeling of pressure of your buttocks on the chair, on the cushion. Allow yourself to arrive fully here today. Letting go of all that's happened and letting go of the idea that we know of what's going to happen. Just allowing yourself to arrive fully here now. aware of areas of posture, you may want to wiggle and move a little bit and hopefully let go of that. Just be here fully now.
and in your own time when it feels appropriate. Shift your attention to the experience of breathing, giving attention to the experience of the breath as it enters and as it leaves the body. You may experience the breath more clearly at the tip of the nose or the chest area, the abdomen. It doesn't matter where. Giving a quality of attention that doesn't try to change what's arising. It doesn't endeavor to manipulate what is arising or comment on what is being. Just being a witness to the truth of the experience of breathing. Turn to the experience of breathing.
willingness to begin again and again is the heart of the meditation practice. Returning again and again to the experience of breathing. other aspect of your experience that is predominant and is stronger in the experience of breathing. You may wish to experiment with shifting 
the attention to whatever it is that feels predominant, maybe an ache in your body somewhere, or sound, an emotion, and giving that same quality of bare attention to whatever it is that's arisen. Means of anger, frustration, joy, happiness, to sound, smell. We open in meditation to all of life, and meditation is a gateway into the heart of life, excluding nothing, opening to everything without discrimination. Returning to the experience of reason to stabilize the attention, <coughs> to stabilize the attention, to cultivate steadiness and concentration, and then opening again whatever it is that calls us away from the reason. I'm sure this never happened to you, but I had a few thoughts during that meditation. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them was, I really want to ask you not to be concerned about me. If at some point it feels like I really need to stop, I will. I take really 
kind and good care of myself these days. So, um, if perhaps you're feeling that, I hope you'll just drop it. Okay, now this is like hell. (laughs) Okay, so that's (coughs) done. That's done. If things go as planned, what we'll do is we'll have a break in the afternoon, maybe about 15 minutes, and um, I'm going to ask you if you'll use that time to maybe wander outside on your own and just be with whatever is evoked for you. Um, We're beginning with some difficult, challenging, and hopefully useful and inspiring subjects. And one of the ways that we remove ourselves from whatever is being evoked is by talking and and giving a lot of words to it and and sharing opinions. And so uh, know that we are going to have a break. At the end of the day, there will be uh, tea and uh, uh, cookies and stuff. And and that there will be this sort of quiet opportunity just to be with what you've opened, perhaps use that time as an opportunity to think what it is that you'd like to bring back and share here. I consider myself, perhaps as you do, as a student. I, I really don't like the label of teacher. And so um, I'm going to, if necessary, facilitate discussion here. I, I don't feel any need to be a part of everything that happens. And so I really hope that we have a rich kind of intermingling of of whatever has gathered here. So, do you think we have any questions about this afternoon? Do you know where the toilets are? <laughs> That's a pretty important one. Given that I'm going to be drinking all the time. <laughs> well, the toilets just through here for those of you that don't know. And of course, feel free to go out there at any point. So, as you no, my name is Gavin Harrison. I'm 44 years old. I, at the moment, am dividing my time between a little New England village called Amherst. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of the last month in San Francisco, and I spent two months of the year here with my mother in Warner Beach. I was diagnosed HIV positive in July 1989 and was infected in about 1981. So I've been infected for... Um, I'm also a chartered accountant, so it can take too long. <laughs> 14 years. <laughs> Previous incarnation. So really, that was long before we even knew that there was a virus. And so today, there isn't really convincing evidence that the virus is the sole reason why people develop whatever it is that they develop. And at the time of the diagnosis, life felt so utterly fragile. It just blew me apart. That fall, you know, I was diagnosed in July, and a storm of specialists and doctors, and they took more blood out of me than I, I, than I knew that I had. And it was extremely difficult putting together a health team that was concurrent with 
with my feelings and philosophy about illness and thinking, and of course I was dealing with immense anger and rage and confusion. And there was no part of me that fall that believed that I would be around to see the spring flowers the following year. There was no part of me that had seen that. And here I am, you know, six glorious summers later. I am so grateful to be here. There is no part of me that takes being here for granted. And in these six years, I've had an increasing sense of fulfillment, happiness, peace, and contentment in my life of a kind that I never ever knew before. Life today, with its ups and downs, we're currently on a downswing, with its challenges, with its difficulties, still feels immeasurably rich, very blessed, and really quite simple. What I'd like to do is introduce myself, tell you a little bit about who I am, about the book, by sharing some of my history, and I'll continue reading little excerpts from the book for that. You can get some sense of what it's about. So I was born in Johannesburg. When I was seven years old, I was sent to boarding school in Kimberley. After matriculating, I spent a year in the army in Parker's room and then went straight on into chartered accountancy at Swiss. And while I was at Swiss, I met a wonderful Welsh man. We fell head over heels in love with one another. In fact, what happened was we were both uh, very confused. We were both dating women. And uh, somehow we got together, I can't remember how. And we would go to the discotheque, and I sort of began to realize <laughs> that the only reason that I was going out with uh, Derry and uh, his partner was because I just thought Derry was the cutest guy. I didn't think, you know, I didn't for a moment think he was gay. Anyway, one thing led to another, and uh, we parted company with our partners. and left the country together, lived a couple of years in Johannesburg, beautiful and wonderful years. It was the time of um, the Soweto riots, we were very active in politics at the time, it was really hard. And, uh, we left the country, traveled in Europe for a year, and then moved to Iran, where we lived for four years, four really wonderful years. And I was quite happy to spend the rest of my life in Iran, but the, re the revolution came and South Africans were the first people to be kicked out of the country. There were many of us there. The Shah had close ties with the South African government at the time. Um, I split up with Derry and went to the United States. And a couple of years later, I went back to England to see him again. and. I was astonished when I met with him to realize that I still loved him deeply and was absolutely baffled and bewildered about how I could have split with this guy when there was so much love there. It was obvious that we weren't going to get together, but I resolved then that I was not 
going to be in another relationship until I understood what it was that it had affected me so powerfully at that time. And it was no coincidence, I guess, that I ended up, I came back to South Africa after London and ended up uh, at the Buddhist Retreat Center in Topo. I actually did a two-day retreat in Johannesburg that Joseph referred to, and he was the one who introduced me to the Dharma, and I really enjoyed that weekend, and then went down to Ikopo and sat for five days. And the Ikopo experience really powerfully affected me. I found myself weeping uncontrollably through that retreat. Every time Joseph spoke, I was so touched by what he said and felt that I was reconnecting with a way of life that seemed so true and familiar to me. I instinctively and intuitively knew that this was my path to understanding what it was that had so disrupted my life. In the teachings and in who Joseph is, I felt the permission to bring forward in myself part of myself that I'd marginalized and ostracized and of which I felt really quite ashamed. These qualities of sensitivity, gentleness, and care struck such deep chords in me. So Joseph left, and instead of taking up a job as a, as a financial consultant for the Holiday Inn, I stayed at the retreat center <laughs> for a year and became an absolute zealot, you know. And meditated, you know, in a way that probably wasn't very healthy, but I was just so excited and I was just so driven by a knowing that that I could understand what it was. So I stayed there for a year, returned then to the U.S. and to my life as a uh, chartered accountant in Manhattan. I had a beautiful apartment filled with all manner of treasures from Iran carpets and paintings and silverware and stuff. And after four days, I realized that there's no way that I can live in this madness. And so my brother had just um, immigrated to Canada, and I asked him to come down with a truck, and he drove all my stuff up to Canada. He was, of course, delighted. <laughs> <laughs> and I shaved my head and, and ordained as a Buddhist monk uh, at a burning fire monastery. And it was the beginning of 18 months of really intensive, silent practice. During those 18 months, I met the other person who become both a teacher and very close friend in my life, who some of you may know, Michelle MacDonald. And that experience really profoundly and irrevocably redirected my life. Each year since then, I've done really long retreats of various lengths. And the meditation that I primarily do is the insight meditation, which is what I earlier on. We all do have moments when we touch the deeper truth and feel fully alive and interconnected with other people and with nature. 
perhaps while hearing starry music or gazing into the eyes of a newborn child, we know some of the contentment and peace that surpasses our everyday understanding of life. Often the beauty and perfection of nature can touch us profoundly in moving ways. For me, one such moment happened on the island of Maui in the crater called Haleakala, which in Hawaiian means Mansion of the Sun. Haleakala rises 12,000 feet from the surface of the ocean and many more thousands of feet from its eastern seas. Having formed the island eons ago, the volcano continues to dominate the landscape and determine the weather patterns on the island. Very early one morning, I drove to the top of the volcano. I left the tropics at sea level, moved through a cool temperate zone of tall evergreens, and finally reached a bleak and barren peak. There I found lava rock and no vegetation. Clouds swirled below. I read on a placard that if I'd been able to go directly through the center of the earth where I stood, I would have ended up in Cape Town, South Africa. Full of feelings of both near and of being both near and far away from home, I decided to hike down into the crater. Haleakala is dormant, of course. The trail leads 2,000 feet down through an alien domain of magnificent black, red, and gray lava rock, dotted with huge cinder cups cinder cones that spewed out lava in prehistoric times. The only plant that can live inside the crater is the silver sword, an endangered species that looks like yucca but without a spike. Yucca is kind of like a sweet cactus. Silver swords grow for about 12 or 15 years, bear one flower and then die. The sharp white leaves of the silver swords reflect the dawn like mirrors bright against the dull sand and grass. I was alone. It was deadly quiet. I sat down on a piece of rock and looked out at the cinder cones that rose up from the floor of the crater. I was transfixed by the spectacle around me. For a moment my mind grappled and struggled to find some sort of reference for what I was seeing. There immediately rose a deep and stronger sense of knowing that this place was simply beyond comparison. There were no references. For the longest time I sat there, awed like a child, nothing stirred, either within me or outside of me. In letting go of the absurdity and even the arrogance of believing that we know what the next moment will bring. We relinquish our grip on reality and surrender into the mystery of not knowing moment to moment what will appear next in awareness. It was during that long retreat that it was like a curtain <coughs> went up in my mind and I was able to see aspects of my childhood from a perspective and with an objectivity that had not been possible for me before. I'd been sent to this all-boys school, Kimberly Boys High School, to toughen me up and to make a man out of me. 
And almost from the moment I arrived there, I was sexually abused by one of the masters and several of the older boys. I guess I must have been very cheap. <laughs> I was bullied and I was abused and it was relentless right through my years there. Very often it was the rugby players and the hockey players and the stars that would force themselves into my bed at night and then during the day they were the same ones who ridiculed and teased me and really marginalized me so much. It was really a hard time. And in that retreat, all the feelings returned. The feelings of being marginalized and peripheral, ostracized, or feeling terrified, different, and alone. And over the years, in the meditation practice and in other therapies, I've grappled with this legacy of what happened so long ago, engaging as best I can the anger and the sense of shame and betrayal all the pain that was held, the contraction, the fear, the terror. I've also done a lot of work with forgiveness, and that's been one of the most difficult things for me. Yeah. A chapter in here about forgiveness. I just want to read one paragraph which I feel is so important about forgiveness. I always emphasize this. True forgiveness is not on any level a condoning of events that should never have happened. How can we say yes to torture, to abuse, to rape? To do so would be unthinkable. Rather, forgiveness is a strength, a power, and maturity of heart that brings profound healing on many levels. True forgiveness enables us to detach and remove ourselves from someone else's nightmare. For me, the path of forgiveness has been a slow, true, and immensely difficult one. And then I had to go through a period of truth-telling. You know, I came back to South Africa and told my parents what had happened. They had no idea. And then I went to the school and uh, asked them if they would arrange meetings for me with the staff, with the teachers, and with the headmaster, and with whoever was there when I was at school. And of course, they thought that, you know, oh, here's an old boy coming back, lived in the States, chartered accountant, oh boy, you, you could already wave the flag here, a great success story. So they were all gathered in the headmaster's room and sat down, and the headmaster leaned back in his chair and said, Oh, well, rugby team is top of the league this year, and our cricket team is doing really well, and our hockey team, boy, are they a good bunch, you know. How is it when you, and I said, stop. I said, I have not the most interest in anything that you say. I said, I've come here to tell you the truth of what my years were like at this school. And I explained to him that it's possible in the meditation practice at times to go back into our history free of all that kept us limited and blinkered at the time, of course fear and terror, and re-experience it from a perspective that wasn't possible before. And I told him everything that happened. 
Well, they were absolutely shaken and silent at the end of this. And I told them they didn't have to worry about whether I was graduating or whether it was true. I said, I know what happened. It's clearer to me than the books on this table. So their only response was, oh, tell us who did it and we will take action against them. I said, I'm not here to blame. I'm not here to point fingers. I said, that should have been done 25 years ago, but it wasn't. I said, I'm here for two reasons. One is to alert you that this is probably still happening. And the priest who was there said, oh no, you know, this is a Christian school, you know, <laughs> this doesn't happen. I said, you can talk about Christ until you blew in the face, but until you open your doors to the kids and tell them that there's a permission to come forward about anything that is troubling them, you're not going to hear about it. And I said, I've come here to speak the truth in a place that really limited and deeply affected me. And I've come to unburden myself. Well, the headmaster was really concerned about what I should say this to. I spoke to the staff and they were just, oh, it's terrible. It's like all the men were there smoking cigarettes and all the women were on this side and, you know, they were just totally disinterested. But I think we really regretted it because they were like three or four hundred kids in school, all in their black and white uniforms and straw back a hat, just like the ones when I was there. And I just like, I told them how it was being gay at the school. I, t I told them what happened and how totally unacceptable it was. At that time, I didn't know I was HIV positive, but I did speak about AIDS. I spoke about uh, many things, apartheid, which was, of course, never discussed at the school. And it was wonderful. And what it did for me was it really unburdened me. And I left there exhilarated and really clear. And I came to see that truth telling is really an important part of healing from what happened long ago. Work with setting boundaries and parameters and perimeters and setting limits. And I explore this really fully in the book. Perhaps the most difficult has been the healing of the cycles of self-blame and self-hatred and the sort of crucifixion that had been going on all my life and the violence. And slowly over the years, over dogged years, I'm happy and grateful to say that it is more workable these days, much more. It's faster, it's not an issue that's ever present, and it's easier. With the deepening of meditation and with the passing of time, I come to see blessedly and thankfully that I'm not a victim of abuse, that I have choices, and that being abused is not an identity I wield either against myself or against others. It happened, I accept that as best I can now, and I dance with the legacy of what that left me with. So then in 1989, when I was diagnosed HIV positive, one advantage that I had over most of my brothers and sisters who had been similarly diagnosed at that time was that I really had strong refuge in spiritual practice 
And so what was possible was that the diagnosis moved to the center of the spiritual path. And I found myself with choices and options that I don't believe everybody has and for which I'm immensely grateful. Options like discovering the essence of pain, uncovering the roots of anger, exploring the heart of fear, asking questions like, what is love? What is hate? But really, with this virus, the grappling with fear has definitely been the most challenging aspect of the experience. Well, it's so nice to have a book, you know, you don't have to sort of <laughs> read all You don't have to, like, speak all the time. My own HIV-positive diagnosis was really a dual diagnosis. It was a physical diagnosis and a diagnosis of fear. With this virus come the collective terrors, the irrational phobias, and the ignorant fears of a humanity that lives in deep dread of something it can neither understand nor control. This whirlwind of collective terror can strike at the slightest age, pain, heart, bump, or blemish. Examining some bumps, my fear may easily escalate to unbridled pain. Legitimate concern blooms into a fear of things I've had before, fear of things that have happened to friends, fear of things I've read about, and the fear of what I've heard or even invented in my mind. The challenge for me, I've come to see, is to let a path be just a path. An ache be just an ache, and a blemish just a blemish. I remind myself that I'm no different from other human beings, that these bumps come and go, and that they will in my life too. And then I can respond, if necessary and if appropriately, to what is happening. I can respond with wisdom and tenderness rather than in terror and panic. And what that means is I'll probably make much better decisions. And it was like, I saw a wonderful doctor yesterday. Mm. Yeah, really great guy. He lives here in Somerset West. And uh, he prescribed a whole like regimen of pieces and you know, homeopathic stuff, and, and that was, I mean, he was just talking my language. I was so happy, you know, and I really didn't think it was possible, to, you know, to do that. And we did a whole, like, blood series and stuff, which I faxed off to my doctor last night, and my doctor actually wasn't there, but another doctor responded, and he said, straight on to antibiotics, you know. Two, two, Twice a day, 500 milligrams, powerful, powerful antibiotics. And, you know, I discussed this with Les, and, you know, he showed me that he really felt it was inappropriate. And, you know, these are the decisions that we face. I mean, you know, sometimes strong drugs are necessary, and sometimes they're not, you know, and it's really difficult. And I feel like I'm often really served by having an intuitive voice, a kind of guidance that I can refer to that helps me make decisions. And I feel truly blessed 
because that's now part of my life. So let me tell you about people. When I was diagnosed, you know, I immediately saw that I needed this virus to be in my body. I mean, he'd been there for like eight months. I don't know why he could be, but he could be. He'd been there for eight years, and now that I knew he was there, it was like I loathed him. And it was really fashionable at the time to do this visualization where you imagine all the T cells like rushing around in the body, gobbling up all the HIV virus and triumphing over them. And, you know, I started doing this, and oh, I just felt like there was this wall going on inside of me. It was exhausting, you know. And I knew, you know, this just didn't work for me. I mean, it worked for some people, it didn't work for me. And I realized that what I needed to do was I needed to come into a relationship with the virus. And so, first of all, I removed it all from the word AIDS, because AIDS is just so hard. So I called him Sipo. Like, if I ever changed my name, I would change it to Sipo. I really loved that name, and I had a really close friend called Sipo. So, so I call the virus Sipo, and every morning, Sipo and I check in with each other. You know, how you doing? I'm okay. What's up today? Well, this is what we're doing, and it's a pretty busy day, so lay low today. Tomorrow's a clear day. If you want to act up, make it tomorrow. <laughs> well, as you know, sometimes it doesn't work, but most times it, it uh, uh, well, I, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then, we affirm our relationship. No, first we contract, you know. We say, okay, well, I have to teach a workshop this afternoon, so if you agree not to, to act up, I will promise that tomorrow I will really work well. And then we do this like formal affirmation ritual, which is we both re repeat together, I love you live. I die, you die. We both want to live. And so that's our bottom line, and we affirm that together. <laughs> and, you know, obviously it doesn't always work. But what it's meant is that I've come into relationship with people. When I have a week like this, which happens every now and again, you know, there's no panic. Clearly, you know, something's happening somewhere. You know, there's no sense of some sort of foreign invader really sort of destroying my body. It's just a question of me listening carefully enough to try and respond appropriately to it. If I need to take really strong drugs, so be it, I will, you know. If I don't, then I'll always choose other options. And all the people I work with are people who really are willing to respect that and enter into partnership with me uh, on this journey. So that's people. And one of the blessings of having Sipo in my life, one of the unexpected blessings, has been that his presence in my bloodstream has taken me right into questions of life that I probably would never be asking now if the circumstances were different. Questions like, who am I? Who died? Why the suffering? Why the suffering world? Why me? You know, why me? You know, I'm a good guy, you know. 
And um, I feel that it's in asking these questions that I've opened to the experience of a kind of peace that I'm so grateful for. When I was diagnosed, I joined a community at that time of about 40 friends who had died of AIDS. Um, at this point, I, 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 I stopped counting, but I think it's in the region of between 60 and 70. Of course, in San Francisco, it's devastating. And one of the things that's most difficult is that the media and a lot of the writing has such a terminal flavor, you know, to the presentation of the virus. And I try to protect myself from that because I feel that, you know, a buoyant spirit that acknowledges the truth but steers away from a lot of the nonsense that is written is really important. And, uh, you know, over these years, one of the things that's happened is that death has become a real advisor to my life. I feel like it's become a yardstick, this virus, and a barometer, a touchstone that enables me to really ask, what is truly important in my life? What are my priorities? What do I need to let go of here? There is a sense of urgency that is increasing always. And I really love with the feeling that there really is no time to waste. Grappling with the fear of death is really difficult, it's challenging, and I feel it's a courageous journey. Accepting and coming into step with our mortality and embracing the hard knocks that come our way are the stuff of true warriorship and greatness. And I do feel, and perhaps I can say that I know to some extent, that a real, authentic fullness of life is impossible until we have touched and felt the preciousness, precariousness, fragility, and insecurity of life. Through death, we open to the wonder of life. I don't believe there's a way of doing that without engaging our mortality. Last year, I got really sick. This is like, this is peanuts compared to last year. I really did a great number and everybody was very tiny. <laughs> it's horrible. I was actually, I have a friend who sends me to the Caribbean every year to snorkel, and I love snorkeling. It's one of the great delights in my life. And so he, he sends me there and pays for me to do it. So I did it. And perhaps one of the disadvantages of the meditation practice I've seen is that, you know, you can get so obsessing and you can see things arising and passing away that sometimes you don't realize there's something really going on here that needs attention. I just wanted to snorkel. I wasn't feeling great, but I thought, hmm, you know, I'm pretty hard. But I'll just jump in the water and go and look at the fish. So that's what I did. Anyway, I woke up on Sunday morning and I was like really sick. And I staggered around this place I was staying in. 
brought everything together, called the airline company and said, you've got to get me on the flight back home, which they did. And I went home and got there and was immediately hospitalized. My temperature, for those of you who are aware of these things, was 107 degrees, which usually means, you know, sort of brain damage. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 if you meditate, your brain's having to already. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So, one of the things that happened in the initial days, and there, of course, I was on massive antibiotics intravenously. They just pumped them into me because I said to my doctor, well, give me some idea of what it looks like in my lungs. I had a bacterial pneumonia not PCP, uh, which is a pneumonia that people with AIDS quite often get. I had a bacterial pneumonia. He said, well, I think that if you picture a loaf of bread in your lung, that will give you some idea, in your one lung, your right lung, that will give you some idea of what it looks like in your lung. <laughs> so anyway, so there I was in hospital, and I was sort of hallucinating and delirious, and very tired, and I woke up clear as a bell in like the sort of crisis period, and there was this immense stillness around me. It was like, like this black velvet, you know, it was like black velvet everywhere. And the only thing that interrupted this velvet was this river of like salmon, apricot colored rose petals. And this river stretched before me and went on and on and on, way into the distance. And I was, you know, sort of sitting, you know, cross-legged, and I was like skimming the surface of this river, all this blackness around. When I have whatever this was, a vision or hallucination, whatever, it, you know, was really stylish. <laughs> and I was like, skimming the surface of these rose petals, heading towards this light that was shining back at me. And the closer I got to this light, the more I was blown away by the feeling of such powerful, unmitigated, unmediated, unconditional love, unbridled. It was unbelievable. And I got closer and closer, and I was infused with this light. It was lovely. You know, so you know my mind came rushing in, and I thought, "This is so neat." You know, <laughs> it's like I'm on my way out. You know, I haven't been really, you know, too sick. I'm certainly ready to go. So here we go. You know, and immediately after that, it was like I swung off to the right <laughs> into the darkness, and I woke up in the bed, and the fever broke. You know? I was really disappointed. <laughs> but what that experience has left me is with an enduring sense of, for me, because I'm sure we each have our experience of it, and I, I don't for one moment apply this to anyone else, is that I certainly feel a lot less fearful of whatever it is that lies ahead. And I feel immensely grateful for that experience. And I don't know if it's, what, the, what do they call it? Near death? Yeah. 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 
you know, I don't know what it is, it's not important. What it's left me with is like an appreciation that I didn't have before, that there is a kind of love out there that is immense and that the experience of it is like coming home at last. You know? And so, you know, it's like, why not engage our mortality? You know, because ultimately I feel that that engagement is the experience of love. You know? So, this book. Now, I have to give you some inside information on this book. My very close friend, Rand Engel, is responsible for this book being a reality. He, he thought that I should write a book, and he encouraged me, and I was kind of kicking and shouting and rather overwhelmed by the prospect. And his encouragement and love and generous support along the way, and it was a hard book to write because it's so personal, and I was constantly having to re-enter really difficult themes and and you know grappling with how much do I want to disclose you know there was you know the issue of you know I don't want to write something that's going to really hurt my mother my father is dead so it was a really difficult book to write I'm immensely grateful that I've written it you know and I, for me this book is a celebration of the meditation practice and I really believe that the teachings of the Buddha are not some dusty prescription for people that died like two and a half thousand years ago. For me, the meditation practice has come alive powerfully and fully as I grapple with age and as I grapple with abuse and other things. I can't imagine what life would have been without it. And I believe that if appropriate for us, we choose meditation it can be a fully alive, dynamic, very current, relevant, and workable tool for personal transformation and for all manner of reasons. It's a sort of uncomplicated and I believe an uncompromising introduction to meditation. There are guided meditations on sitting and walking practice. There are a number of other meditations and perhaps Later today, we'll just dip into one of those, and if any of you want to suggest one, please do. There's meditations on loving-kindness, meditations on forgiveness, meditations on equanimity, compassion, sympathetic joy, meditations on cultivating a joy in the happiness of others, which is a way of contradicting feelings of jealousy when other people have everything working out. And your life just feels like it's a wreck, you know. I'm sure none of you had those that <laughs> But I couldn't yeah. have. It really emphasizes the importance of integrating the meditation practice because the med- if the meditation practice is like a cushion trip and, you know, we come here and we start buzzing and it feels really good and we do whatever we do and then we feel sort of holy and spiritual and we go home and feel like we've done our work. I feel like that is a complete violation of the spirit of the Buddhist teaching. That it's really, it's really about living it thoughtfully, carefully, and fully. And living with mindfulness, living with 
awareness with compassion, with sensitivity and love has been the greatest challenge in my life and the greatest joy. So, you know, I look here today and I see some people that I met before last year. Uh, Rand, Rodney, Kayla. And once again, I'm really reminded that I would not be around if it were not for the love, care, and support of friends, of healers, of family, and of community. Okay, the fact that last night to my support group and Kayla came into my bedroom this morning wielding this huge long fan <laughs> full of all, all you know, manner of good wishes and love and concern and telling me that they're waiting for me if I have to come home and not to worry and that's so lovely, you know, it makes me really realize that I'm not alone on this journey, you know, that uh, I'm joining others, you know, or others have joined me as I, as I grapple with what I do. And so this book really explores the blessing of community. I'd like to share with you just a few things that I've written about it. In 1989, when I resolved to be tested for HIV, I told a number of friends of my decision. With the positive test result, these friends gathered around me and since then have supported and loved me in ways that have made a huge difference. Any feelings of isolation and disconnection are contradicted by the love and care I receive. Over the years, the composition of the group has changed and grown. Together, we have weathered hard storms and enjoyed and times of joy. In community, we have looked at uncomfortable issues, seldom confronted by people in the city and distracted world. And in doing so, we have all grown personally as a family. We're about 30 strong at the moment. With these beloved friends, I've been able to share many difficult issues that could otherwise have left me feeling very separate and alone. There are, of course, many other friends in a wider circle that cannot be a part of the group that share this experience of holding me and supporting me in every way possible. I've been able to express a lot of what has been difficult. We discussed health care options, physical symptoms, whatever everyday support I may need, like looking to the doctor, shopping, or inviting to accompany me to the hospital. At every gathering, we ensure that each person in the support group has opportunity to speak personally of his or her own life with its ups and downs. The attention is not directed exclusively at me. And what this has meant over the years is that I do not feel alone on my journey. Many treasured friends, both within the group and beyond, all over the world, have joined me as I grapple and dance with the fire. The ever-present love, care, and support fuels the dream that I am isolated, alone, and abandoned. Within the fire, a spirit of community has arisen that feels like a blessing beyond measure. In community, we hold one another as together we move closer to the healing for which we all took birth. In true community, when one person suffers, we all hurt. When one person has AIDS, 
we all have free. When one person is free, we all breathe easier. When one person awakens, we are all awakened a little more. And when we awaken, we open to the truth of our place within the vast web of interconnection that holds us all and out of which none of us can fall. I see you, Hela. <laughs> Once I spent a weekend at a Catholic seminary north of New York City. It was a gathering of people who, like me, were all HIV positive. There were 80 or 90 people, a cross-section including recovering addicts, alcoholics, middle-class heterosexual couples, street people, gay men, lesbians, hell's angels, some of us were ill, some of us were healthy. I'd never spent so much time among people who had such intense and difficult lives. We all shared the suffering related to AIDS and there was a willingness to open to one another's difficulties and heartaches. That Saturday night we gathered in a tiny chapel high on a mountain. It was a windy night and the brown-robed Franciscan monks turned off all the lights and lit candles below the statue. For several hours in the flickering darkness, people wept and people sang, prayed out loud, shared their joy, told their stories in the darkness. It was a strong feeling of love and interconnection among us. I felt very distant from all that was familiar. My heart gave off a spontaneous prayer of gratitude that our suffering had brought us together in a way that would not have been possible otherwise and that would leave my life somewhat changed forevermore. In the willingness to share our personal suffering and at the same time open to the difficulties and heartbreak of those around us, we create a place of deep truth and understanding that is ultimately so healing. The collective faith, hope, and praise of all who gathered there is a treasured memory I'll never ever forget. So the book, I just want to briefly touch on a, a few of the other issues of the book and then we'll break. The book explores you know, a number of other issues and guidelines that have been really important to my life. Issues like faith, doubt, self-acceptance, and the issue of karma, which has been one of the most challenging ones for me. You know, why me? Why did this happen to me? You know, there was a part of me that felt I didn't deserve it. You know, I was such a good person. Is there a way in which our understanding of karma? can help us know why things are the way they are. I learned a lesson about this at a gathering of people living with AIDS. There were 150 of us present. It was an enormous privilege to be there. My favorite time came every evening when we'd sit around listening to one another's stories. A fire burst in the middle of our circle. We spoke about our lives, our struggles, our ups and our downs. And my mother was there with me often at my side. Bertha was an African-American woman. She weighed 70 pounds and had just come out of hospital 
after the five months period. Although her five children, who also were HIV positive, had been taken away from her by the welfare authorities, her spirit remained vital and strong, even though she was clearly a very, very sick person. My mind began spinning out questions. Then there was Bruce, a man in his early twenties with bright feet, who was dealing with excruciating pain in his body. He was so young, and the same question began ricocheting through my mind. Then there was Jackie. She first got sick in 1979, then very sick in 1984, and she was still very much alive 11 years later, exuberant and happy. She lived with severe physical pain. At the same time, she was a radiant being, and the same question haunts me again and again. Why, why, why? There was so much pain in all these people, and so much beauty. As the storytelling went from person to person, I heard incredible testimonies of how people were living their lives as fully as possible in the face, sometimes, of extraordinary difficulties. Gradually, I realized that each time I got inextricably enmeshed in the why question, I was separating myself from the wisdom and the heart of each person. Quite simply, there was no answer to my question. It was only when I entered each moment fully and was present with the pain, the suffering, the joys, and the happiness of these people that I was able to contribute a measure of compassion, loving kindness, and caring to the situation. <coughs> Fun to the light of <laughs> Let's begin in peace area. A story was told to me by a Western friend who was a Buddhist nun in Thailand at one time. At a monastery, there was one monk who was very difficult to be around. He was fastidious and he was proud. One day he went down to the local village and met with a man who had psychic powers. The seer told him that in his past lifetime he had been a magnificent black stallion. <laughs> the monk returned to the monastery, clearly very pleased with himself. <laughs> Everyone asked him what happened and he responded with very little provocation. I'm clearly on the up and up here. In my last life I was a magnificent black stallion. Now I'm a Buddhist monk, I've shaved my head, I'm practicing meditation, the sky's the limit for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, eventually people got so sick and tired of all of this, they said, well, why don't you go down to the village and ask the fellow what is going to happen in your next lifetime? So the monk returned to the seer, and when he came back from the village, he immediately disappeared into his hut for several days. <laughs> his friends pursued him doggedly, and eventually found out what had happened. The man in the village had said that next time round, the monk was going to be reborn as a tapeworm. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's better not to know these things. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> so what I've done in the book is I've told the story of the Buddha's life. I've threaded the story through the book because it's a story that has really touched my life 
very personally and has great meaning for me. And I've paralleled his experience with our own here in the West today. For me, his life is the promise and the possibility of what is possible for all of us. When I see the statue behind there, what it means for me is it reminds me that he was a human being and his freedom is the birthright of all of us. I, I don't have a devotional relationship with it, not that that's bad, but he reminds me that it's possible, that it's possible. And I believe that it is possible for each of us. It's not some unreasonable thing that's impossible in our lives. We're getting near the end. But I'd like to share with you my favorite story on page 64. Oh, I don't have a card in there. Mm -hmm. No. Oh, I failed. When I visited Hawaii not long ago, each Tuesday I would go to a support group for women and men whose lives had been affected by AIDS. At one session, a new person came in whom I'll call Peter. Peter had great big cancerous lesions on his skin, which he tried to hide under his clothing. One night he told us he went out in his long sleeves as usual, and a total stranger came up to him, lifted his sleeves, he took Peter's arm and kissed the lesions there, and the stranger said, My hope and prayer is that these are soon healed and gone forever. He hugged Peter, turned around, and disappeared. Such expressions of love strike the very heart of fear. Trumper, a great Tibetan teacher who's now dead, is the only quote I'm going to read from the book. He says, The genuine heart of sadness comes from feeling that your heart is full. You would like to spill your blood and give your heart to others. For the warrior, this experience of sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world your raw and beautiful heart. You are willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You are willing to share your heart with others. Peter was clearly both self-conscious and ashamed of what was happening in his body. I believe the stranger sensed this pain and conflict and his loving and compassionate gesture obviously unraveled a measure of the fear and compassion that Peter was feeling. So, you know, this book to some extent focuses on my experience of abuse and AIDS, but I feel that what is more true is that the themes of suffering and compassion <coughs> are universal to us all. And I believe that this book is ultimately universal and not specific. We all hurt, we've all known some kind of trauma, some kind of neglect in our lives. We all share the same emotions. Our stories differ, they're very individual, 
But the suffering is everywhere. And the fundamental causes of suffering are really so similar for all of us. And I believe that freedom from suffering is a right and succulent possibility in every moment of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.